Well, if your Bible is open to where I'm at, I'm in Isaiah chapter 6 this morning, as well as John 12. So I invite you to go to both places and put your finger there in Isaiah chapter 6 and just kind of hold your place. If you're new to New Hope, welcome. Really glad that you're here this morning. And if you didn't bring a Bible with you, there's Bibles in the pew racks in front of you. You can take one of those with you when you leave today as our gift to you if you don't own a copy of God's Word. But as well, the passages will be up on the screen, so you'll be able to follow along that way, and you can uh, watch the text pop up there. A series that we're in is called The Portrait. It's a study in the book of John. And where we're at in this moment right now in John chapter 12, Jesus is incredibly popular. Among culture and society at this period of time where we're at, everybody wants to be with Jesus, except for the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They want to take him out, but they can't get at him. The world's gone after him, according to them. We learned that last week. The whole world is chasing after Jesus, they think. But in three days' time, it's going to change. So where we're ending up in John chapter 12 today, we read last week that Jesus departed from them, meaning He was leaving the temple area, walking away. The next time we get together, you're going to see the Last Supper begin to unfold. That's what starts out with John chapter 13. But where we're at today is an overarching view that John gives us of the first 12 chapters that we've looked at over the course of these past 36 weeks. Next time we get together, we're going to be led into a circle of very deep communication between Jesus and His disciples. Very personal, private communication. He called them away to the upper room. But before John takes us there, he pauses And in just a few sentences, he looks back over the course of the 12 chapters that we've looked at so far, and he summarizes it in these 12 or 13 verses that are in front of us this morning. So John chapter 12 and verse 37 is where we're going to be starting out this morning. You'll see it along up on the screen as well. But though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing performing works that no one had ever done in the history of planet earth previously no one had ever even heard of things like this that jesus was doing and yet john tells us this really sad commentary his own nation not just john's nation but jesus nation where he lived israel as a whole rejected the king they turned their backs on him why we learned last week he didn't come the way they wanted him to come He didn't show up the way they thought he was going to show up. Now, how can this be explained that a people of God who have God's Word, they're steeped in the Old Testament. How can it be explained that they have God in front of them doing all these amazing miracles and yet they completely miss the obvious? How is that possible? I think humanity misunderstands and miscomprehends the power of Satan to be able to blind the minds of unbelievers. Let me remind you of that. You'll see it on the screen, 2 Corinthians 4.3. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So Satan blinds the minds of unbelievers, and sin, our active lifestyle of sin, blinds our minds 
So those two forces put together, apparently for Israel, was a, a cause factor, as you're going to see this unfold this morning. They, according to what John said in verse 37, Jesus has performed so many signs right in front of them, yet they can't comprehend and they totally miss who He is. Now, I didn't put it in your notes this morning, but I put together a little list of the miracles that Jesus did that we've seen so far. The activities, and I'm just going to read them off to you, so listen to this. You won't see it up on the screen either. First of all, healing the sick. The voice from heaven. We heard about last week. Three times that voice. Jesus' ability to foretell the future. Feeding thousands. Expelling and casting out demons. Controlling the forces of nature. Restoration of paralyzed people. Walking on the sea, turning water into wine, giving eyesight to the blind, raising the dead. All those things Jesus did right in front of them. Now, the Bible is extraordinarily honest and self-critical. Of all the works of literature that have ever been compiled in the history of the world, the Bible itself is the most self-critical of situations that are going on. It doesn't paint a garden of roses. It tells things exactly as they are. And yet, when it comes to the miracles and the legitimacy of what Jesus did, do you know that there's never a record of even once of someone questioning the legitimacy of the miracles? What they do question is the source of the miracles. The Jews that lived at this period of time call into question whether or not what Jesus was doing was by the power of God or by the power of Satan. And they concluded that he's working on behalf of Satan. They actually accused him of that in Matthew chapter 12. So the miracles that he's doing in the open light of day with no strings attached, no mirrors, they still completely miss it. I remember when I was a teenager, um, an individual in the community where I grew up, was convinced that Jesus did not actually walk on water. And he had read some article someplace where someone believed that they had proven that Jesus didn't actually walk on water. What he did is he stretched a net out on the water and he walked on the net. Okay, So you can probably see where this is going. So this individual decided to drive some pylons into the lake bed and stretch a net across the, sh- uh, the water just an inch under the surface and demonstrate to people that that's indeed what Jesus did. So this individual gets the net stretched, drives the pylons in, and starts walking on the net and didn't realize that he tripped every time that he tried walking because his toes sunk into the holes of the net. Let alone the fact that the Sea of Galilee is 330 feet deep. I mean, how big would that pylon have to be? Okay, so individuals understand what Jesus did is legitimate. However, if they're unbelieving at this period of time when they've got God right in front of them, the presence of unbelief in our day and age should not surprise us. We don't have Jesus in front of us right now. We just have the written word. John MacArthur, Dr. John MacArthur summed up this very succinctly. I want you to see his quote. The fact of unbelief in the face of such irrefutable and powerful evidence makes clear the limitations of apologetics. Apologetics meaning what we know from the Word of God, we can defend our faith and why we believe what we believe. He's saying there's a limitation to that. While evidences can be given for gospel truth, the response of the sinner is not limited to the mind and human reason. Salvation requires a regenerated heart, the work of the Holy Spirit. 
So John's going to make a case now in verse 38. The why and the how. How is it that these people could be rejecting everything that they see right in front of them? Well, let's look at verse 38. This is John speaking. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah, the prophet, which he spoke. Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Now, I'll show you why in just a minute that I wanted you to put your finger in Isaiah chapter 6 this morning. God, through Isaiah, foresaw 600 plus years before Jesus ever came on planet earth that Israel was going to reject who Jesus was. So Isaiah, with God inspiring him, asked the question prophetically, Lord, who in Israel is going to believe this? Well, the answer is very few. Even though the arm of the Lord, meaning the power of God, has been revealed through Jesus. So the question is asked, to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? Israel, that's who. It's been revealed to them. And the arm of the Lord is talking about the power of God manifested through Jesus. So there's two things right away in that first statement. Let me show them to you. The first one, who has believed our report? That points right to Jesus' teaching. Report meaning the oral teaching that he delivered. Who has believed the things that he said? Very few. And the second thing, to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? His miracles? Well, to Israel. The power of God was revealed to them. And they reject it still. So look at the case now that Isaiah makes. Verse 39. For this reason, they could not believe. For Isaiah said again, He has blinded their eyes, and he hardened their heart so that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted, and I heal them. These things Isaiah said because he saw his glory, and he spoke of him. Now, another remarkable thing about the Bible is that it does not varnish God's actions. You know what I mean by that? It it doesn't paint everything as a bed of roses. It tells things exactly as they are, even when it's a bit uncomfortable. Now, as as a person who teaches the Word of God, I come to passages like this and I think, oh man, that is so difficult. How am I going to teach that to someone who might be a, a non-believer or maybe new to the faith? They look at this and they say, wow, God is really vindictive. I mean, he blinds people's eyes so they can't see. He hardens their heart. What's going on there? Well, we're told there's a reason that they cannot believe. And it's a judgment action on God's part. You look at Romans 9 later today, Romans 9, chapter 9 through 11, and you'll see it, it played right out. This is a judgment action on God's part. Israel's rejection is not only foreseen by God hundreds of years in advance, but we learn here it's also God's absolute design. Now understand, Scripture is not teaching that God has executed some kind of a secret influence on the hearts of the Jews, causing them to be this way preventing them from believing. God does not have to use his power whatsoever in order to cause a sinner not to believe. Here's the truth. If God left us alone, we cannot believe. You understand that? That's what we just looked at earlier. Satan has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. So if God left us alone, we can't believe. It's God who drew us to himself, who draws us in. So what we understand here very specifically is Israel's rejection of Jesus is a culmination, a byproduct of years, hundreds of years of rebellion, of rejecting what they know to be true, 
of misuse of their privilege and forsaking the truth. And the terrible result is this. When truth came, they could not believe. Leon Morris sums it up this way. I'll let you see his quote. When John quotes, he hath blinded their eyes, he does not mean that the blinding takes place without the will or against the will of these people. These men chose evil. It was their own deliberate choice, their own fault. Make no mistake about that. So here is a biblical reality that I personally believe is still true today. A biblical reality is this. Someone who persistently hardens their heart against the things of God, against God, constantly rejecting Him, ultimately may find themselves hardened by God. And I'll I'll speak to that issue. You look at the, the situation in Exodus when God was dealing with Pharaoh and Moses. How many times do we see Pharaoh hardening his heart against the things of God? Ten times. Moses kept coming, performing the signs. Pharaoh hardened his heart against God, the Bible says. And then eventually it transitions over, and then it says ten times God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Because he rejected God so long, God finally gave him up and said, okay, I can't convince you any longer. I'm going to have to destroy the firstborn of this nation in order for you to let my people go. That's why Scripture says in Isaiah 55, 6, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. A very important principle there in Scripture. Act upon it when you know it to be true. So I want you to see the order of two statements in verse 37 and verse 39. You'll see this on the screen. John 12, 37, they did not believe. So in 12, 39, they could not believe. So all the appeals have been made unquestionable evidence has been presented, the miracles, the teaching, and yet they reject the Redeemer of their nation. So they would not believe the consequences. God gave them up, and they could not believe. And we're talking about an end times issue here. I don't know if you're aware of that. That issue still is prevalent today, church. When Israel rejected Jesus, God gave them up to the hardness of their hearts. As a nation, they rejected Him. And it will not be until the tribulation period during the last days of planet Earth that God will allow them to have the blinders come off. And as a nation, they will repent and come back and say, oh, that's who Jesus is, the Messiah. But how many hundreds of years have gone by? Thousands in which people have gone to their grave rejecting Jesus because of the hardness of their own heart. So we understand this is an end times issue this is also talking about. Jesus, right up to the last moment, as the light of the world is sending out beams to the nation of Israel, saying, look at me, here's who I am. And they still reject him. I want you to take just a minute. This is worth the time to do it. Look at Matthew chapter 11 with me. I know you got your finger in Isaiah 6, but if you don't mind, open up to Matthew chapter 11. I want you to see what Jesus said about the nation of Israel and their rejection of him specifically. If you have your Bibles, you don't mind flipping over there. Matthew chapter 11 and verse 23. If you didn't turn there, just listen very closely. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades, for if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. 
Nevertheless, I say to you that it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. That's really severe, isn't it? I mean, we know what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah. Jesus is saying, you've got God right in your hometown. Capernaum is where Peter lived. That's where Jesus based most of his ministry from. That's where a lot of his miracles took place. You've got God in your city. You're going to be accountable. It's going to be more severe for you in the day of judgment than it will be for Sodom and Gomorrah. That's a powerful pronouncement from God himself. So what we're looking at, I know it's only like 11 o'clock in the morning, 11.50 in the morning, and this is incredibly intense, but hear me, it is unspeakably severe to play with the offers of God's grace. We cannot trifle with it. That's why Hebrews 2.3 says this, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Now here's the reason I wanted you to look at Isaiah chapter 6 because John's going to qualify what Jesus is about to say. John, Isaiah chapter 6, if you don't mind flipping over there, if you've got your finger there, he said in verse 41, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and he spoke of him. What's he talking about there? John, living in the first century, quoted Isaiah living 600 years before Jesus. Why did he do that? Well, we understand that Isaiah, a man just like us, walking and working and earning a living on planet Earth, God allowed him to enter into the throne room in heaven. Now, whether that happened bodily or he saw it in a vision, we don't know. We're not told. But what we do know is that God invited him into the throne room to show him things no one had ever seen before. And in Isaiah 6, you see the response of what Isaiah saw. You'll see it up on the screen as well, but you can follow along in your own copy. The Lord God Almighty invites a man into the throne room, and this is what he saw. I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces. With two they covered their feet. And with two they were flying, and they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorpost and the thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Because Isaiah saw the glory of God, he could speak emphatically about, God, who has received our report? Who has understood the power of the mighty God's arm and he's translating this over John is helping us to understand when Isaiah saw the glory of God in heaven he saw the glory of Jesus Christ he saw Jesus the word in heaven the glory of God so the implication that we have here is Jesus is God John's translation for us to help us understand this is do you understand what you're messing with You're rejecting God of the universe, the mighty one whom I saw in glory. That's why Isaiah recorded what he did for us. Now, he comes back to commentary mode. He goes into verse 42 after he's chastised people for totally missing who Jesus is. And this is where it picks up in verse 42. Nevertheless, many even of the rulers believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue For they love the approval of men rather than the approval of God. 
So apparently there were lots of rulers who were believing in Jesus. Matter of fact, if you read later today in Acts chapter 15, you'll see that there were actually Pharisees who came to Jesus after the resurrection. The resurrection was so powerful that it convinced the Pharisees to show up. And you see a setting in Acts chapter 15 where the Pharisees come to a prayer meeting and they're meeting with the disciples and they begin praying with them. Is that not amazing? So apparently some of these rulers were secret followers. Well, we know Nicodemus was one of those. And Joseph of Arimathea, they came to Pilate at the crucifixion and asked for Jesus' body. That's when they came out. But prior to that, they were hidden followers. Why? Because they wanted the approval of men. We learned a couple weeks ago that the authorities had already issued a decree saying that if anyone publicly professed Jesus, they would be cast out of the synagogue. Well, what does that entail? To be cast out of the synagogue means no more financial dealings, no more community social life, no more worship in the synagogue. So you've not only lost your community structure and your ability to worship God corporately, but your job's on the line. You can't worship Jesus because it's going to cost you everything financially. Your customers will stop showing up at the door. You know that many people reject the truth of who Jesus is because of the fear of man? Still today, we're told according to Revelation chapter 21 that there will be those who are cast into hell because the fear in them is so great that they never professed Jesus Christ. Revelation 21.8, you can look at it later today yourself. Those are some of those who are cast. So I have to ask this question, what benefit is there when appearing before the throne of God to say, you know, I never confessed Jesus simply because I was really afraid of what my neighbors were going to think or what my boss would say or my family members Jesus asked this exact same question, Matthew 16, 26. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? So as I'm going through this text, I'm looking at this and thinking, what is it that holds people back? What keeps them from getting to the place where they're willing to confess Jesus publicly? Well, we're told right there, number one, fear of man. Number two, Loving the praise of man, not wanting to be excluded. Don't we find those exact same groupings today? It existed in the first century. We've got individuals whose minds are convinced, but their hearts are completely uncommitted. Where do you find individuals like that? Individuals who are living in fear of exclusion. They want to reject what their current lifestyle is, and they want to be excluded from their social world or their employment world. So in fear of those kind of consequences, fear of exclusion, they'll reject who Jesus is. Apparently, individuals in Israel did the exact same thing. They did believe, even among the rulers, but they had no courage to affirm what they knew to be truth. So here's the conclusion I've come to. The glory of God himself, the glory that Isaiah saw, The glory of God himself is of less interest to mankind than the glory of the approval of the world. Why is that? Well, the approval of the world, the glory of that is so much more tangible and seductive. And it's right there. I mean, you can reach out and put your hand on it. You get instant pleasure out of it. 
but the, the glory of God is something more removed, less tangible, doesn't have the sensuous advantages. So we understand what's coming next now is a summary statement. After John's laid this casework, something jumps into his mind and is burned into his memory. And remember, he's in his 90s, and he's looking back when he's on his, the time when he's in his 20s, and something pops into his mind, brought forward by the Holy Spirit, and he remembers what you see in verse 44. He remembers Jesus crying out. Look with me. And Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me does not believe in me, but in him who sent me. Verse 45, He who sees me sees the one who sent me. And the emphasis here is on the impossibility of believing in God apart from believing in Jesus. So Jesus makes the statement, He who sees me sees the one who sent me. This is really vital to our study. We call this the portrait. And we, we were told according to John 1.18, when you see Jesus, you see God. Jesus is saying it again here. When you see me, you see the one who sent me. So that means, for the purpose of our study, everything he taught, everything he did, everything he's shown us about the Father has been part of this portrait that we're painting on this canvas. And it's such a significant issue that Jesus screamed it out. Why? Because through his life, He's been unveiling who the Father is. Everything he's done is constituted in unveiling. So hear me. If we're going to grasp the truth of what's being said here, when we believe in Jesus, we are actually saying we believe in God, vice versa. When we say we believe in God, we're saying we also believe in Jesus. They're not two different gods. One God with three parts to him, if you will, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, the three in one. And this issue is so significant that Jesus screams it at the top of his lungs. How do I know that? Because John used the word kradzo, and it's only used when someone is violently projecting their lungs. Look with me on the screen at the definition for the word kradzo, to scream, to call aloud. So picture the setting. Jesus is walking out of the temple. He screams out aloud, I and the Father are one. When you see me, you see God. Can you imagine standing in the Meridian Mall, in the center of the mall, and seeing somebody do that at the top of their lungs? You're going to want to commit them to an asylum. So Jesus is in the most public place right before the Passover, and he screams this out loud. Why? Because it is so huge he wants us to understand who he is now look how he follows it up verse 46 i have come as a light into the world so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness if anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them i do not judge him for i did not come to judge the world but to save the world uh, many individuals have taken this passage out of context and completely corrupted it so it's important that we spend just a minute on it and dissect it so that you can see what's really going on there. First of all, let me show you this on the screen. I don't know if it's in your notes this morning. What we take right from verse 46 is Jesus existed before his incarnation. The word when he says, I have come, means I have arrived in the Greek language. I have appeared. It's not as though his life started at birth. He arrived on the scene at the incarnation. 
but he existed before that. Number two, he is the one Savior of the world. There is only one. That's why he said, you've got to believe in me. Number three, he came for everyone who believes, not just one nation, not just for the United States of America, not just for Israel or for China, but for the entire world, for anyone. So when we look at verse 47, and he uses the word anyone, who is he speaking about in the next section when he says, if anyone hears my sayings and keeps them not? What's going on there is a transfer. Verse 46 is talking about why he came. I came as a light. Verse 47 is now to the effect that the words which I speak are going to direct the future of all of mankind. It's a very subtle shift. Why I came and the result of why I came. Verse 47. So when he says, I did not come to judge but to save, here's where the corruption takes place. Many individuals will look at that and say, well, see right there, Jesus said himself. He didn't come as a judge. He's not going to judge people. There is no judgment. Well, that's true. Jesus did not come as a judge in his first coming. The purpose of his mission was to reveal God and to save people. But the purpose in his second coming is to come as a judge. So first coming to save, second coming to judge. So that's why he says in verse 47, if anyone hears but does not keep my sayings, I do not judge him now. Now, if Jesus uses the word keep, we better be very careful about what that word means. It's the word phulasso. Greek language, I only have two Greek words for you this morning. This is the second one. Phulasso, keep, means to watch or to be on guard. Now, if you're going to be fully committed to something enough to guard it, you better make sure your life is committed to it. Someone who's going to guard something at the expense of their life better be fully committed to that thing that they're guarding over. So implicit within Jesus' statement is there's an unwillingness on the part of some individuals to be guarding over his word. See, let's be clear. The hearing that's taking place here, the hearing that John's talking about, is not the same as spiritual acceptance. We're talking about individuals who hear the words of God. Maybe they're listening on the radio when they're driving in the car. Maybe they turn on a television station and they see an evangelist preaching. Or maybe they've had a personal conversation with a friend who's a believer in Jesus. And they hear the words. It processes in their mind. They're taking it in as intellectual information but they're not keeping it. You see the subtle difference there? Someone who isn't owning it to the degree that they're willing to commit their life to it. So what we're talking about here, the responsibility which comes on everyone on planet Earth who have heard the words of Jesus, they know what Christ's words are, and they keep them not. Jesus is saying, I judge him not, not now. I'm not here to judge. I'm his Savior. But now look what he transitions to in verse 48. This is where it begins to wrap up. He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him at the last day. <gasps> There's a last day? I didn't know that. Many people would say, what? A last day? Well, we look at that very closely in verse 48, and it says, there is a judge. 
One who judges. There is a final authority. What is that? The word what I spoke. There is a last day. I know this is intense. But this application is to everyone who's ever heard. There is a last day. The bounds of history have been determined by God. I will promise you it is not December 21st of 2012, okay? Regardless of what the Mayan calendar says. The word of God is very clear. There's at least seven years of tribulation after the rapture of the church, okay? So we can be very clear. It is not December 21st, so you can not worry about emptying out your portfolio and spending all your money, okay? Leave it where it's at. All the financial planners here at New Hope love that, okay? Be very clear. That's not what it is, but there is a last day, and I think many people forget that. Let me remind you, just a brief sidetrack here, 2 Peter 3.10. The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. That's just a sidetrack. We'll get to that another time, okay? So when Jesus said, the word that I spoke is what will judge him, this, understand, is a breathtaking announcement. Jesus is screaming this at the top of his lungs in the most public place in the capital city of Israel. He wants people to hear this, and it's an awesome thought. At judgment day, every single unbeliever will face every single word of God they have ever heard and will answer for it. The very word that individuals reject becomes their judge. That's why I say this is burned into John's memory that Jesus screamed this out. Now here's where it ends, verse 49. This is Jesus speaking again. For I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. I know that his commandment is eternal life. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father told me. So Christianity 101, okay? Jesus' words determine eternal destiny. That's a truth of Scripture. Not just because of who He is, but according to that, because He speaks for the Father. Therefore, no one can reject Jesus without also rejecting the Father. So no one can claim immunity. You reject Jesus, you're rejecting God. That's why He said, I didn't speak on my own initiative in verse 49. Now understand, Jesus is fully equal in nature to God. If you've ever struggled with that, why does Jesus take his directives from God the Father? I thought they were one and the same. How can that possibly be? Well, because Jesus humbled himself and he emptied himself of his attributes so that he could take on the form of a bondservant. Look with me on the screen, Philippians 2.5. Having this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant. So Jesus assumed a submissive role at the point of incarnation, and he only spoke the words that God the Father, which gave him to speak. And those words, those words are absolute, and they will never fade away. This earth will burn up. These pews, this carpet, this building, everything on earth will be destroyed in the last day. But God's word will never fade away. 
That's what we're told according to Scripture. Matthew 24, 35, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Why? Because that's the source of how we're judged. Now, Jesus himself wraps it up by saying this in verse 49, the Father himself has given me a commandment. Now, in rejecting Jesus, the Jews at this time in the first century are rejecting the Father himself. I don't often use uh, the biblical interpretation of the the book called The Message, but for this case, I make an exception. The Message is a a paraphrased version of the Bible. Um, And and theologically, I struggle with some of the things that they interpreted, but this one they got right. Let me show it to you from The Message, 1 John 5.10. Whoever believes in the Son of God inwardly confirms God's testimony. Whoever refuses to believe, in effect, calls God a liar refusing to believe God's own testimony regarding his son. So how horrible is that? The sin of rejecting the evidence of Jesus. Everything that he did is equal with rejecting God. Now understand, John's got a first century audience that he's speaking to, so in summary, it's comprehensive, the statement that he's made. In refusing to accept Jesus, They're refusing the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And that's who the Jewish people were completely committed to. The reason for the magnificent power of Jesus' word is that the truth that he spoke is rooted in the eternal counsel of God Almighty. Absolute, guaranteed authority of the word of God. Would someone dare to reject the things that God said on Mount Sinai? Would someone dare to reject the things that God said to Abraham? But yet they would reject what Jesus said, which is absolutely the unutterable word of the living God spoken as a man on earth. So what we're looking at here is something that's very true today, and this is what I want you to take with you this week. It is culturally unpopular to take the position that I've just presented to you in which Jesus says, I know that his commandment is eternal life, that there is one way, one truth, one life, and it comes through me. So if Jesus is saying, I know that God's commandment is true and it leads to eternal life, we want to say, what is that commandment? That's a pretty big deal if that's the one that's going to give us eternal life. Look with me on the screen. 1 John 3.23. This is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ. And here's the truth. It is God's commandment, not yours. When you go out and speak to your friends, your coworkers, your family members who may reject this truth, You're speaking under the authority of God's commandment. You can do the same thing that Jesus did, in which Jesus said, you may reject me. You may despise the things that I say, yet I know if I'm operating within the parameters of what God has said, his commandments, his directives are true and they lead to eternal life. Even if you feel I'm wrong, that doesn't make it any less real because I can back it up with the word of God. That's what Jesus is saying. The word is what's going to judge you. And so for you, if you're a believer this morning, this should give you a sense of amazing encouragement and courage and a sense of purpose. When you walk out and you promote God, you're speaking his commandment, not the commandment of Mark 
or commandment of Tony or the commandment of Joan. It's God's word. So as we first examine these 12 chapters that we've looked at, we see this amazing portrait in which Jesus, in the 36 weeks it took us, described what God the Father looks like, his nature and his character. Where we're going next is into some really deep conversation between Jesus and his followers. But up to this point, you've seen the evidence. I have to ask you, if you're not there yet this morning, if you're not a believer, have you considered the evidence? Have you come to the place where you've got the conviction that Jesus is the Son of God? And are you willing to commit yourself to that? Have you trusted him? Isaiah 55, 6 again, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. I'm going to pray for you right now and pray for all of us and pray for our whole church that gathered in the three services this weekend that God would take these things that we've heard this weekend and would seal them in our heart that we would be bold on his behalf. Would you bow with me? Father, for individuals who are trying to figure you out and and trying to understand your nature and character, God, I first ask that you would come alongside them and show them that you are the God who loves and cares and forgives. And you provide forgiveness of our sin to the degree that you separate our sins as far as the east is from the west. And there is a second chance with you and a third and a fourth. Father, also help us to remember that we don't want to harden our hearts against you that we have to respond to you at the point of salvation to recognize that you are near and that we not trifle with what you've offered. So God, for individuals who may be trying to think through this, I ask that you would come near to them, come alongside them, provide conviction where conviction is necessary. But Father, also provide comfort and forgiveness. And I know that's your nature and character. God, for my brothers and sisters in Christ, those who believe you and have driven their stake in the ground and say that they belong to you, I ask that you would encourage their heart as they take on this week to recognize that at all cost, we have to proclaim who you are, even when it means not getting the approval of the world around us. God, make us bold on your behalf. It's in Jesus' name we pray this for our church. Amen. Have a great week, church.